Brethren, the book of Acts is a powerful story of God establishing the New Testament church and the role of the Holy Spirit in that process. In the book of Acts, as you may recall, we see individuals, men and women, who were in the habit of using God's Holy Spirit and being led by it regularly. Let's go to Acts chapter 2. We're going to read again something that we've read recently. But I can't start a sermon on this holy day and not read this passage of Scripture. It's a passage of Scripture I think we're all familiar with. Again, we've read it already. But brethren, this is the beginning. This is the beginning of the church that we continue today. Something made possible because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and His return to His Father. You recall just before he returned to his father, that he said, I must go so that the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, can come to you. And in fact, he told the disciples, stick around. Stay in Jerusalem. This is about a week before the Feast of Pentecost. Stay here. Don't go home. Don't go back to Galilee. Stay here and wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, Some of you may remember Mr. Nathan's sermon about this time last year. And he explained a little bit more in a little bit more detail what that phrase has fully come means. Referring to the fact that this was the Pentecosts of all Pentecosts. This was the Pentecost that all previous Pentecosts had pointed toward. The giving of God's Holy Spirit to the New Testament church and all he would call. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly, verse 2, there came a sound from heaven. Not an earthly sound. A sound from heaven. As of a rushing mighty wind. You might remember, some of you, in the Greek, what the word in the New Testament is translated spirit. It's pneuma. Pneuma, it's the word that is the root of our word pneumonia, for example, or pneumatic. It has to do with wind, with air. There was a sound of, as a rushing mighty wind and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And they, there appeared on them, look at the miracle. Most of us probably haven't seen this in our lives. I would venture to guess none of us have seen this in our lives. I hope you haven't. Divided tongues of fire, and one sat on each of them, and they were all filled with the guarantee, the down payment that we just read about, the Holy Spirit. And we we learn in John that this is actually the Spirit of the Father that they were filled with. And they began to speak with other tongues or languages, as we read down a little bit later, as the Spirit gave them utterance. God started his church with a bang, didn't he? Or with a whoosh. One that got a lot of people's attention. God doesn't do incredible things in a vacuum. But he got people's attention and he began his church as he began to pour out his Holy Spirit. This spirit that Timothy was told is a spirit of power. 2 Timothy 1.6 
of love, and of a sound mind. You know, it's interesting, that word power. It's fun to go back to the original Greek and Hebrew because we get some greater insight into these words. You know what the word power is in the Greek? And it's telling. The word is dunamis. And it's the word that we get our word dynamite from. The spirit of power, spirit of dynamite. And of love, certainly, and of a sound mind. God poured His Spirit out. And what's interesting is we see the apostles using God's Holy Spirit throughout this book of Acts to heal, to cast out demons, to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God. Let's go to Acts chapter 4. And for just a few minutes at the beginning of the sermon, I'd like to look at a few instances where we see God's Holy Spirit working in His church, guiding His church, driving His church forward. And brethren, I'm going to then leave it to you. If you haven't read through the book of Acts recently, I encourage you to do that. But read the book of Acts from the standpoint of how God used His Spirit to lead and to guide His church and the work through the apostles. Acts chapter 4, let's break in here at verse 23. And as you... Flip to that passage. Just remember what happened just prior to this. Peter and John were preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. They were preaching about Jesus Christ as the Savior. And they were thrown into prison by the Pharisees. Now, we've got to keep in mind that this is less than two months after the death of Jesus Christ. Just when the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the priests thought that they were out of the water... It was safe to come out of the water. They thought this Jesus thing was over. Here come his disciples preaching him again. So they threw them in prison. They threatened them, no doubt, with their own lives. You can imagine some of the conversation that went on. Yeah, remember that Jesus guy? That guy that we killed? Remember how he died? We can do that to you too. What's interesting is the disciples didn't go underground at this point, did they? They did not go underground. Peter, the one who denied Christ three times to the point where he was cursing, didn't run away, did he? What was the prayer? Acts chapter 4, verse 23. Being let go, they went to their own companions and they reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. So when they had heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord. They were on the same page spiritually. Some of them did not do. Remember the ancient Israelites? Shortly into their sojourn, God sent out the twelve spies to the promised land and the spies came back and... Joshua and Caleb said, we've got to go into the promised land. God has given us this land. The other ten spies said, we don't want to do this. There's giants there. And the Israelites themselves said, oh, we don't want to do this. It's scary. They were not of one accord at that point. They were divided. Yet here we see the apostles and the disciples on the same page. They were with their companions. 
uh, all the chief priests, the elders said to them, so when they heard that, they raised their voice with one accord, Lord, you are God, who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David said, and he begins to quote here from Psalm 2, why did the nations rage, the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth took their stand. The rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His Christ. They realized and they remembered they're not alone in their struggle. Verse 27, For truly, as they pray here, For truly, against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. And look at the prayer. You know this prayer. You've read it before. Maybe we can put ourselves into this prayer and ask, would I be willing to do this? Would I be willing to pray this way in the face of what they were facing? Now, Lord, look on their threats, verse 29, and grant your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they prayed, look what happened, brethren. Look at how God reinforced the prayer. And when they prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the Word of God in boldness. In boldness. God emboldened His people. He gave them confidence in Him and in the Son of God. And in the power that He had given them. Let's flip back to Acts, or flip over to Acts chapter 5. And we'll start reading in verse 12. Just one example here. Acts 5.12, again, remember who Peter was. Remember the cowardice that he exemplified less than two months before this. And look at how he responded here and what God was doing with and through Peter. Acts chapter 5, verse 12, And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people, and they were all in one accord on Solomon's porch. There at the temple. Yet none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. And believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and couches. Imagine this. Picture it in your mind's eye. Here come the apostles. And people are bringing sick people into the road laying them down on beds and couches and, as we might say here, pallets, putting them near. And what happened? Bringing them into the streets, they laid them on beds and couches that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some. Imagine that. Imagine healing coming through just being passed over by a shadow. Obviously that wasn't human. That was divine. It was the power of God's Holy Spirit at work. The dunamis 
of God's Holy Spirit at work. What changed Peter from that fearful man who denied Christ into a man full of the Holy Spirit whose shadow had the power to heal the sick? Brethren, it's the same Spirit that dwells in many of you. It's the same Spirit that if you're not yet baptized, you have access to. The same. The one and the same Spirit that God has used, can use, and will use to do miraculous things and bring even more glory to Himself. Acts chapter 16. Let's flip back into the story of the New Testament church further. We're going to turn into the ministry of Paul at this point. And this is the last example I'll give you from the book of Acts and how God powerfully used or worked through His Spirit to lead His church. Acts chapter 16, let's start reading in verse 6. Here we're talking about Paul and Silas and Timothy and their travels and how God's Holy Spirit, how God through His Holy Spirit led these individuals to preach the gospel, to raise up the church, to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Acts 16 verse 6. Now when they gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, They were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. We find out elsewhere that they were forbidden to go there because Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. Asia was where a bunch of Israelites were, Jews. Peter was there. That was not Paul's area. Paul was to go somewhere else. But they're forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. After they had come, verse 7 To Mysia, they tried to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. So passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas, and in a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Macedonia is in Greece. Now after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. This is just one of many instances in the book of Acts where we see God through His Holy Spirit pushing, prodding, chiding, and also in a dream here, directing the apostles to go to certain places and not go to others. I'd love to continue the story in the book of Acts because it's riveting. It's exciting. To see how God led His people in starting His church through His Holy Spirit. Brethren, what kind of expectations does God have for each of us? Especially those who have been called. And who've been baptized for decades. Mr. McNair talked to us yesterday about the future of God's people. The future of the future generations in the church. God has expectations for all of us. How does He expect us to use His Holy Spirit? What must we be doing so that we're not lulled into spiritual complacency, brethren? Mr. McNair reminded us yesterday that we need to grab on to God and grab on to His truth and not let go. When we do that, what can He do through us? You know, you read in the book of Acts, And you see how he used people, lots of people, and they weren't just ministers. 
And they weren't all ordained and they weren't all men. Philip had four daughters. Not yet married daughters. Who prophesied. God used these people as you well know. Brethren, what are the spiritual repercussions or results of becoming spiritually complacent in our attitude or focus? Of losing our grip on God's truth. I want to read to you the lyrics from a uh, contemporary Christian artist by the name of Matthew West. Some of you know this piece. Please don't sing it. I won't sing it today. <clears throat> but the piece is entitled, The Motions. And I want to read the chorus of the song. It says, I don't want to go through the motions. I don't want to go one more day without your all-consuming passion inside of me. I don't want to spend my whole life asking, what if I had given everything instead of going through the motions? Do those lyrics fit any of us in this room today? Do those lyrics fit us in the past, perhaps? Brethren, what I'd like to do in the remainder of the sermon today is to discuss two ways to become an even more wholehearted Christian and to avoid going through the spiritual motions. Brethren, for God's Holy Spirit to work in us, to work in us to will and to do powerfully, to allow us to be the kind of spiritual instruments that God wants, we must be fully committed to Christ. We must fully grab on to Him. We must fully be engaged in the truth and in His work. We cannot just go through the motions, brethren, or God's Holy Spirit is hindered in us. I think you know that. Turn with me, if you would, to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. I'm going to read about one of the churches, one of the elect group, called out set of individuals along the ancient mail route in Asia Minor, modern day Turkey, central Turkey. <clears throat> We're going to read about a church, and brethren, this is the church of God. A church that had some challenges. A church that wasn't doing quite what it needed to do. A church that is represented by the end of the age. The era that we now live in. And when we see the characteristics of this church, it doesn't take a lot of imagination to see the characteristics in the society all around us, does it? Let's read, starting in verse 14, we'll read about the church at Laodicea. Depictive of this Laodicean era that we live in. An era that we live in, characteristics of an era that we live in, yet characteristics God, our Father in Heaven, doesn't want us to have. Characteristics we have to fight. Every single one of us, you and me, have to fight against developing these characteristics. Because if we develop these characteristics, brethren, we stymie the Holy Spirit. And it cannot work as God would want it to. Revelation 3, verse 14, and the angel of the church of Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, one of the titles of Christ, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of creation of God. He says, I know your works, that you're neither cold nor hot. Now, this is not talking about 
literal temperature. See a number of fans moving out there in the audience. Some of you are hot. Others of you have jackets on. You're cold physically. That's not what this is talking about, is it? It's talking about spiritually. I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. God says, you know what? It's better if you're ice cold spiritually than if you're lukewarm spiritually. Just a little bit excited about God's truth and His way is actually worse than being totally turned off to it, according to the Scripture. He says, verse 16, and brethren, you know this passage, so then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and I've become wealthy and have need of nothing and do not know that you're rich, Wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Again, spiritually speaking. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich. White garments that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And anoint your eyes with eyesalve that you may see. Again, spiritually. Verse 19, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous. Means hot, on fire for the truth. Turn on, excited, be zealous and repent. Repent of what? Of that lukewarm, half-hearted nature. And then he goes down in verse 22 and says, To that person who's willing to listen, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. God doesn't want us to be lukewarm spiritually. But question, how easy is it to become lukewarm spiritually? How easy is it to become like this church at Laodicea? You know, the Laodiceans really were the church era. The church, the Laodicean era is the era of going through the motions, isn't it? Putting on a show. Going through. Doing the basic things. But perhaps tuning out spiritually. That's why we have these warnings. Revelation chapter 12. Revelation 12. This is something Dr. Mary has been really admonishing us about recently. We've got to stir ourselves up and draw closer to God so He can stir ourselves up even more. Revelation 12, this is a sobering passage of Scripture, brethren, as we read it. We're going to break in here in verse 17. Talking about God's church at the end of the age. And what's sobering is this is His church. This woman who's being talked about is the true church here. This is not the woman of Revelation 17, the false world church. This is God's true church, and it's a warning. Revelation chapter 12, verse 17. The dragon was enraged with the woman. Yeah, Satan is going to be quite angry with God's church at the end of the age, isn't he? He hates the body of Christ. Because the body of Christ, as the bride, we just read it in the sermonette, is going to inherit all things. Is a joint heir with Jesus Christ. And is a reminder that he will inherit nothing in the kingdom of God. So he's enraged with her, with the woman. And he went to make war with whom? 
the rest of her offspring. See, just a couple of verses before, we see that Satan tries to go after the church and the, the earth swallows up these armies, the flood, that's going to go after the church. And a portion of that church is going to be spared the tribulation, placed in a place for time, times, and half a time, as we see up there in verse 14. Placed in a place. The, the Greek word for place is actually topos in the Greek. Again, not to throw too many foreign language words at us, but topos is in, interesting. Does that sound vaguely familiar? Topo, topos. Ever seen a topographical map? Topographical map? Gives you elevations and locations? That word topos refers to a literal geographical location. That's what the word means. Part of the church, part of the woman is taken to that topos, that place. Yet, part of the woman, the remnant of her offspring is not taken to that place. Satan goes, the dragon goes to make war with the rest of her offspring. And what's interesting about the rest of the offspring, let's read the end of verse 17 there. They're not unbelievers, brethren. What are they keeping? What do they believe in? They're keeping the commandments of God and they have the testimony of Christ. These are people who are living by God's way of life. They're praying. They're tithing. They're there on the Sabbath and the holy days. They may not be eating pork and shellfish. But the devil goes after them and they're not in the place. Why? Why? That's a telling question. Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. We'll come back to that concept of God's church and a portion of God's church missing out. And when, when I'm talking about God's church, I'm not talking about the living church of God versus other churches. This is the body of Christ we're talking about. But a portion of the body will not be in the place of safety. They will go through the tribulation. Brethren, God doesn't want any of us to go through that tribulation. He has not called us to do that. He's called us to be first fruits. To be spared. To be part of the crew that He uses to change the world. Luke chapter 9. The words of Christ Himself here. <clears throat> what, is, what are some of the commands that Christ gave to His disciples long ago and to us as His modern day disciples? Luke chapter 9. Verse 23. And He said to them, If anyone desires to come after Me, let him do what? And let her do what? Let them deny themselves. Let them take up the cross daily and follow me. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. We're reminded here that we're not to live our lives for ourselves. Mr. Nathan talked about that this morning. It's not about self, it's about community, it's about others. We have to be living in a bigger way. And we know that. We know that. We're on the same page there. But we're also to deny ourselves and to take up our cross. How often? Not just on the Sabbath. Not just on the holy days. 
daily. We've got a daily obligation before God to live His way. Brethren, I tell you no new truth today. And I'm not speaking by pointing out a finger. I'm reminding you of what you know. We all have to remember this. This is our part of our commission. Mark chapter 10. God expects us, Christ expects us to live in a certain way, doesn't He? To live that way daily. To make it a way of life. To walk in this way of newness of life. That's what we committed to at baptism. Those of us who are baptized. That's what you will commit to at baptism. Those of you who are not yet baptized. Mark chapter 10, verse 17. Mark 10, 17. Now as he was going out on the road, one came running, knelt down before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? You might be able to place yourself into that position. If Christ was before you, wouldn't you want to know? How do I get there? Verse 18, Jesus said, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one. That is God. You know the commandments. How do you receive eternal life? What are the words out of Christ's own mouth? Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Verse 20. And he answered and he said to him, Teacher, these things I've done, I've kept from my youth. Not a, not a first generation believer here. How did Christ continue? Verse 21, Jesus looking at him, loved him. He loved him. We're godly offspring, brethren. And he said to him, One thing you lack. Go your way, sell whatever you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. And take up your cross and follow me. It took action, didn't it? Did the action earn him a place? No. No, but Christ wants to see that we're willing to move for him and to do for him. Brethren, how do we avoid becoming spiritually complacent? How do we avoid becoming spiritually lukewarm or ho-hum or so-so? How do we avoid hitting spiritual cruise control? That point where, you know what? I've got a relationship with God and we got a good relationship and I've got God in my pocket and we're ready to go. So I can relax. How do we avoid that? That prod by Satan. What can we do to prevent just going through the spiritual motions of our Christianity and instead make sure that we're growing in godly zeal? And commitment that we're really grabbing on to the truth and grabbing on to God, and we're close enough to be able to do that. Matthew 25. Let's look briefly at a parable that you're very familiar with. A parable that ties in very closely with Revelation 3, verses 14 through 21, that we read just a minute ago. The parable of the wise and the foolish virgins. Matthew 25, starting in verse 1. Brethren, you know the story about these ten. These ten virgins. They were spiritual virgins. That's the analogy here. They were elect. Called out by God. Betrothed to the Son. The bride. That's who they were. That's who they represent. 
kingdom of heaven shall be likened, verse 1, to ten virgins who took their lamps and they went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. Different levels of commitment, spiritually speaking. Those who were foolish took their lamps and they took no oil with them. That's an interesting thing. That would be like taking a flashlight today or a torch, depending on what nation you're from, and taking no batteries. What good is that going to do? Not very much good, will it? You've got something that fills your pocket, but it is of no good. The foolish took their lamps, but they took no oil, no fuel. That, that oil, by the way, as I think most of you are aware, is symbolic of God's Holy Spirit, God's power. The wise took oil in their vessels with them in their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, he delayed his calling or his coming, they all slumbered and slept. Notice it wasn't just the foolish virgins who slumbered and slept, spiritually speaking. The wise did the same. Brethren, we live in an era. It's an exciting era. If you read the news and prophecy every week, it's exciting. The things that are happening before us today, before our very eyes. I've grown up hearing about these things that were going to happen. And now every week I write about them. And they're happening before our very eyes. Christ's signs and symptoms of His return are everywhere. We live in this end of the age when things are happening, yet we want to be spiritually, we have a a tendency, we have a push to be spiritually complacent, to get comfortable in what we know and understand and believe. Let's continue at midnight, verse six, a cry was heard, behold, the bridegroom is coming, go out and meet him. Then all the virgins arose and they trimmed their lamps and the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. That's like saying, give me some of your batteries. My flashlight doesn't work. Brethren, if you have a flashlight with three batteries and you give me two, what will that do to your flashlight? I guarantee it won't work. And the wise virgin said, we can't do that. We can't. Give us some of your Holy Spirit. Give us some of your zeal. Give us some of your faith. That's what's being asked for here. And obviously you can't download that. I don't care how good the cables are. You can't download God's Holy Spirit. You have to grow that. To fan it into flame. We have to do that individually, don't we? By working with God. Nobody can give it to us. If if somebody could give it to us, we could just move to the closest pillar in the church and hang around them and it would ooze out of them and and, and overflow onto us. Boy, that would be easier, wouldn't it? We wouldn't have to do anything. Our lamps are going out, verse 9, the wise answered and said, no, lest there should be not enough for us and for you, but go rather to those who sell, buy for yourselves. You've got to build faith. You've got to build wisdom. You've got to grow God's Holy Spirit on your own. We can't do that for you. Could you imagine somebody coming up to you, brethren, and saying, you've got God's Holy Spirit, give me some of that. How do you do that? That's 
what the wise virgins basically said. Verse 10, and this is the sobering part, brethren. Remember who the virgins are. Wise and foolish alike, remember who they are. They're, be, they're betrothed to the bridegroom. They're the they're representative of the church. The ones that He has called to Himself. The ones He's trying to make ready. Some of them didn't do, won't do what they need to do. And what is the result? Verse 10, well, they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with Him to the wedding. And the door was left cracked open so that those who were late could come in later. Is that what your translation says? It's not what mine says. Anybody ever been to a concert where they close the doors during the first movement or act of the, of the presentation and they won't let you in? And you have to wait? The doors were closed to them. Verse 11, afterward the other virgins came saying, Lord, they're knocking on the door. That's another Revelation reference as well. They said, Lord, Lord, open to us. Remember who we are? Remember that down payment you gave us? Like an engagement ring? We're wearing your ring. We do have some of your Holy Spirit. And what was his comment? What was his comment? He answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I don't know you. Brethren, this is his church. And he says, I don't know you. Watch therefore, for you neither know the day or the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. That's powerful. Christ's own called out ones. He says, I don't know you. Brethren, how do we avoid just going through the spiritual motions that can result in a door? A door that God wants to swing wide open for us and welcome us through. How can we avoid going through the motions which will result in that door shutting in our face? How can we make that happen? How can we help that to happen? Brethren, the reward of those who go through the motions, if they're alive at the return of Christ, is going through the great tribulation. If they die before He returns, possibly going, coming up in the second resurrection, or even worse. I want to give you in the remainder of the sermon today two actions that you can take, that we can all take, that we all need to take, myself included, to avoid going through the spiritual motions. To make sure that we are grabbing on to God and grabbing on to His truth and not letting go. To make sure that our lamps are full. That His Holy Spirit is alive and vibrant and active in us. Because it's up to us. Christ will not fan His Holy Spirit into flame for us. He gives it to us as a gift. But He expects us to do with it. Point number one. Action number one. How do we avoid going through the motions and in turn develop more godly zeal and focus? Action number one is to take more control of our life. Take more control of our life. How in control of our lives are we? How often do we make the comment or how often do we feel like 
Life is living us instead of we are living our lives. Brethren, we've got to be purposeful and intentional in everything we do. We can't just allow life to happen, can we? Deuteronomy chapter 30. Turn back there with me. Deuteronomy 30. Back to the words of Jesus Christ. Written through the pen of his servant Moses. Deuteronomy 30. And we'll read verse, some of you know this by heart. Some of you were made to memorize this as children. Deuteronomy 30, verse 19. I call heaven and earth as a witness today against you that I have set before you life and death. Blessing and cursing, therefore, I force you to take life. Is that what your translation says? No, that's not what it says, is it? It says, therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live. Make the choice, God said. God never forced Israel to do things, did he? God doesn't force us to do things today. He's not standing behind us with a lightning bolt saying, you must follow me and you must live this way of life and you must obey and honor just me. He doesn't do that. He gives us a choice. We are free moral agents. We have the opportunity to make decisions. And He wants us, He pleads with us to make the right choice, but He won't force us to do it. Brethren, how much is God a part of our everyday life and our everyday choices? How often every day do we make the conscious choice to choose life? How often do we just go through the day and get to the end of the day or maybe the end of the week and think, hmm, I haven't thought a whole lot about God today or this week or haven't thought a whole lot about making a life and making choices that He would choose. I gave a sermon last, had the opportunity to speak last week in Greensboro, North Carolina. And by the way, they bring their greetings and send their greetings to you all. And one of the statistics I used in the sermon on making choices was the fact that most adults make roughly 35,000 semi-conscious decisions a day. 35,000. You make over 250 conscious, semi-conscious decisions about eating alone. Thanks to the wonderful cooks in here, we had many choices today that we had many decisions we had to make. <clears throat> How many of our decisions every day involve God, involve God's way of life, involve pondering and thinking about, you know, if Christ was literally in my skin, which choice would he make? Which decision would he choose? Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8, as we think again about the, the era that we live in, this attitude of me, myself, I, that permeates this end of the age, this attitude that forces us, almost, to focus so much on self that we forget that bigger picture of why God is working in us and through us. Luke chapter 8. Again, the words of Christ here. This is the Messiah speaking, our Savior, our elder brother, our soon coming Savior and King, our High Priest. Notice what He's 
directing us to think about here in the, in the uh, interpretation of the parable of the sower. Luke chapter 8 and verse 14. Luke 8, 14. Talking about one of the aspects here of the parable. Now the ones that fell among the thorns, this is the, the seed of God, the truth of God that fell among thorns, are those who, when they've heard, go out and are choked with cares, with riches, and pleasures of life, and bring no fruit to maturity. The ones that God has called. All of these four different aspects of the parable of the sower are are God's people. People He's calling into the truth, us. And we're affected differently by the world around us. But there's a group that their, their love for the truth is choked out by the cares of this world, by riches and pleasures of life. Brethren, so many of us live in a, in a life that is rich, isn't it? With cares and with riches. Again, I think about just the covered, wonderful covered dish meal we had today. And the joking that Mr. Lyons did about standing up and singing and burning calories. Because we all sat down with a full stomach. We had some wonderful things to eat today. And then we weren't just limited to one or two things. Take your pick. Everything was great. Everything I put in my mouth was great. And the plate that my wife fixed for me was full of all kinds of yummies. How many things in our lives distract us, our cares, our pleasures? And it's, not, it's not wrong, brethren, to be able to appreciate some of these things. We're not, we're not all to be ascetics. We move up to tops of hills or mountains and live in monasteries and have one pair of clothes and sing and hum all day. That's not what God's expecting us to do. It's okay to recognize that every good and precious gift is from above and, and to enjoy God's gifts. But we live in a society where enjoyment is really one of the gods of this age, isn't it? People worship the God of enjoyment when we look around at it. Christ warned against these things. Brethren, we've got to, as we think about taking more control of our lives, examine our lives, examine ourselves. And I encourage you to do that more and more. As we approach the end of the age, all of us need to do that. Do it individually. Do it with your family. Examine together. I encourage you, avoid becoming so busy that you don't have time to think, plan, or contemplate. I'll say that again. Avoid becoming so busy that you don't have time to think, plan, or contemplate. We've got to make sure that we take time to do that. Because if you live any kind of life like I do, it can become, it can be very easy to be consumed with life and be so busy that you don't have time for these things. Last thing you want to happen is God to slow you down. I say that sitting with my foot up next to the podium. God can slow us down and force us to take more time to think, plan, and contemplate. I encourage you, brethren, try and create manageable and godly routines and habits. Manageable. Now, there are things that happen. Life happens. Times get busy from time to time and you have to deal with it. 
But brethren, we've got to control the lives that we live as much as we can. It's critical as we think about these things. Brethren, it's critical to begin every day with meaningful prayer and Bible study. You know this. I'm I'm preaching to the choir. Much bigger choir out here than was up there. We know we need to begin every day with meaningful prayer and with Bible study. How many of us are able to do that every day? We've been admonished. Scripture admonishes us. But we've been admonished from the pulpit many times. Mr. Ames speaks to us about prayer a lot. We've been admonished to pray in a meaningful way. Hopefully on our knees or close to that. At least twice a day, if not three times. How many of us are able to fit that in? How many of us make the time to do that? I'll let you in on a hint. I do try and pray three times a day. That middle prayer in the day is a challenge sometimes because the day gets busy. I have on my calendar an alert that at 12.30 every day goes off and says pray. Some, Some of my colleagues don't know this. They'll walk by my office around that time and my door will be closed and they'll think I'm gone. No, I right now I hop over to my door. And I close it and I recently have been sitting on my couch instead of kneeling before it. It's been a little bit of a challenge to kneel. And I bow my head and I try and take some time. First thing I do is I pray, God, please don't let anyone knock on my door and please don't let my phone ring. Let me have a few minutes with you. And then I try and get some time, some meaningful time in the middle of the day to reconnect. Sometimes, not right now, I go for a walk and pray. Brethren, we've got to make time. We are without excuse. Yes, we can come up with lots of them. And I I can give excuses with some of the best of them. But are we praying meaningfully at least twice a day? Are we reading our Bibles meaningfully, daily? Preferably starting the day that way. Not just flipping to the pages, but purposefully reading. We've been encouraged to fast between every four to six or eight weeks at the most. Are we making the time to do that? Certainly there are a few who cannot do that. Our our little kids, obviously, that's not going to benefit them. There are some who have extreme health situations where you can't fast at all anymore. Some of you fast, have health situations, but you have figured out how to fast in a way, maybe not for 24 hours, but maybe for 12. Are we making the time to do that like we need to? Or was atonement the last time we fasted? Brethren, I don't say these things to accuse. We're all in this together. But let me be very clear. If we're not praying meaningfully at least twice a day, if we're not doing regular Bible study daily, if we're not fasting, brethren, on a regular basis, the chances are we're going through the motions. And God's Holy Spirit is suffocating within us. Please hear me. Think about it. We all struggle 
I struggle to make sure that I get prayer time in like I need to, and Bible study in like I need to. And fasting time, it's not always convenient. Not in Satan's world. We've got to fight for that time. But brethren, we can't afford to go through the motions. If we go through day after day and we don't really think about God, except for when we pray, chances are we may be going through the motions. And again, suffocating Satan or God's Holy Spirit. And Satan takes advantage of that. Matthew 26. Turn with me there. Matthew 26, the night before Christ died, look at the admonition He gave to His disciples. <clears throat> Powerful admonition here. Peter, James, and John, as they went deeply into the garden with Him. Christ praying these three times on His knees, praying in such a convicted way that He sweat blood. He was serious, wasn't He? This is our Savior who recognized the gravity of what He was getting ready to go through and He realized He could not fail. This was set from the foundation of the world. He had to do this. But he didn't underestimate the power of the wicked one and his being in the flesh and the weakness that brought him in the flesh. Matthew 26. What was the admonition to Peter, James, and John and ultimately to you and to me? Verse 41. Verse 40. Matthew 26, verse 40. Then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. <laughs> Late night, big meal. A little bit of wine at the meal. Stressful night for them. Think about this. They knew the three and a half year ministry of Christ was coming to an end and they didn't want to admit it. They knew their Savior was going to die. They knew the tenor there in Jerusalem. They knew the Pharisees wanted His head and His body on a stake. They were emotionally wrung out. They weren't trying to... I don't think. They don't think they were trying to be careless. They were part of the elect and they slumbered and they slept. But what did He encourage them? He went a little further in and He fell, verse, excuse me, verse 40. When He came to the disciples, He found them sleeping and He said to Peter, What? Could you not watch with Me one hour? We're not talking, Peter, about days. Just an hour. How long was Christ praying? This wasn't a little 30 second prayer, was it? At least over three periods. It was a sizable interaction with the Father. Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The Spirit is indeed willing. And brethren, isn't your spirit willing? Don't you want to be in God's kingdom with all your might? Don't you want to honor God with all of your being? I know you do. I do too. The Spirit is willing, but what does He say? The flesh. The flesh is weak. Christ didn't let them off the hook, did He? He didn't say, you know, God understands you're tired. No, He said, guys, brethren, watch and pray lest you enter temptation. He warned them. He tried to encourage them. The Spirit is willing. you got a good heart, but the flesh is weak and you got to fight it. Brethren, God wants us to fight. He wants us to fight for His truth. He wants us to fight for His way of life. 
He wants to know that this gift, this down payment that He's given us, or that He will give to us, He wants to know that it means something to us. That we're not just sliding by and taking it for granted. And the actions that we take and the life that we live and the way we live our lives tells Him that, doesn't it? Let me read to you from the May-June 2016 Living Church News. This is Dr. Meredith's article entitled, The Spirit of Power. And I'll just quote from one paragraph. He said, May God help every one of us to be determined to draw much closer to the God of the Bible during this period of time and drink in of the power that is available to all of us through the indwelling of God's Spirit by which He created the heavens and the earth and everything in them. God wants us to drink in of this if you're not yet baptized. God wants you to choose life one day. To choose to drink in of His Holy Spirit. You can't do that if you're not baptized. You need to do that at some point. I'm not saying we're going to do an altar call here. Everybody on our own time. But brethren, if we've been sitting here for years and we've not been baptized, we need to ask ourselves the question, what am I doing here? God wants us to choose life. He wants to put His Spirit in us. He wants us to be resurrected in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye at the seventh trumpet. He wants us there. But He can't do it if we don't make the move first to respond. He wants us there. Continuing with the quote, This is the power Jesus Christ Himself used in overcoming His own human nature. Having been willing to empty Himself, and He refers to Philippians 2.7, and even die for us in one of the most slow, gruesome, and agonizing deaths ever imagined in the minds of this Satan-led society. So Dr. Meredith prods us. I read that and feel like he's shaking me. Be determined to draw closer to God. With this point in mind, we've got to be determined to take even more control of our lives, brethren. Because if we don't control our lives, we live in a society under the, the sway of a God of this age who will control our lives. If we don't take control of the strings, we become his puppet. Think of a marionette and how the puppet master moves arms and legs and even their mouth. Satan is the God of this age who will do that if we do not take control. Point number two, action number two. What else can we do to make sure, to help ensure that we're not going through the spiritual motions so that God's Holy Spirit can not only live in us, but grow in us and that God can really use us as his instruments of righteousness? Point number two, action number two, is to create an even more godly culture in your home. Create an even more godly culture in your home. These godly habits. I'm taking that phrase from Dr. Jeffrey Fall. He uses it multiple times in the booklet on successful parenting God's way. I want to quote from him in the booklet. And just keep in mind, he's talking about families in a godly culture in a family home. But brethren, the concept applies to all of us regardless of where we are and at what stage in our lives we're in. Let me quote. He says, too, too, all too often, parents tend to compartmentalize God and their family. 
And it's not just parents, is it? We view the Christian walk as composed of certain Christ-like behavior patterns. Church services, patterns of occasional family Bible studies. In truth, this is a good start, but there's far more to creating a culture of God within our homes. If we visualize our entire family life as a pie chart, you've all seen pie charts, haven't you? These charts, and they have these pieces of pie, these sections that represent different aspects, in this case, aspects of our life. He says if we visualize our entire family as a pie chart, most would view the spiritual aspect of parenting as a small percentage of the whole. I look at my life as a parent. Yeah, I'm, I'm a father. I'm a husband. I'm an employee. I'm a Christian. And I've got these other pieces of who I am. And I could do that if I'm not careful. Let's see. If we visualize our entire family life as a pie chart, most would view the spiritual aspect of parenting as a small percentage of the whole. Simply a small piece of the pie. In contrast, if we truly do want to rear our children in the image of God, then the spiritual focus must encompass the entire pie. That's talking to to families, to parents. Those of us who are parents, how much of our family life encompasses Christ? Those of us who are not currently parenting children in our homes, So you may be older or younger than that. How much does our spiritual life encompass the rest of our life? Is it a piece of the pie? Is our spiritual focus a piece of the pie? Or does it permeate all of the pie? We've got to ask ourselves that question. Joshua chapter 24. Joshua. Chapter 24. And as you go there, let me give you some context. This is at the end of the book... Of Joshua. Joshua is about 110 years old at this point. He's been in the promised land now for about 30 years. He's getting ready to die. This is the end of his age, at the end of his life. And he, like Moses did roughly 30 years before him, is giving his parting words of wisdom and admonition to the Israelites. Joshua 24 and verse 1. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and he called for the elders of Israel, for their heads, for their judges, and for the officers. And they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to the people, thus says the Lord God of Israel, your fathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham, the father of Nahor, dwelt on the other side of the river in old times, and they served other gods. And he begins to go through and admonish them and to show them what they needed to do. To remind them to continue to follow Him. To not grow weary doing good, as Paul would say. To keep fighting the fight. To be strong and of good courage. But then he winds down part of this saying, verse 14, Therefore, he says to them, Fear the Lord. Serve Him in sincerity and in truth. Put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, here's the choice. The choice that Moses gave some 30 years before. Choose for yourselves this day whom you'll serve, whether the gods, of your fa- whether the gods which your father served, 
which were on the other side of the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. I love this verse, this part of the verse. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. As a father and a husband and the head of my family kingdom, this is one of my credos. Those of you who have been in my house have seen it. It's on the coffee table in the, in the living room right now. I see it almost every day. And it's not a boast. It's a, it's a convicting statement. It's something that I want to measure up to. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I want to do that. I think you want to do that. But brethren, the Lord is the only one we must serve. We can't serve our lives. We can't serve our work. We can't become a servant and a slave to things. We must serve the Lord. Brethren, how many of our decisions, again, revolve around the question, how would Jesus Christ do this? How would God want me to make this decision? How will this decision impact my ability to live a zealous, godly Christian life? Brethren, what spiritual habits do we have? Which spiritual habits do we need to further develop? Do we have a plan? I'm going to, if you're taking notes, I encourage you to write down some of these questions and, and meditate on them a little bit more. Do we have a plan for our personal Bible study? Or do we just sit down and flip open to a page in the Bible? And, and granted, there is a time to do that. But we need to have a plan and a purpose and a goal with our Bible study. What do we hope to accomplish? In our Bible study. What books do we want to go through? What godly concepts do we need to develop a deeper understanding for? As we think about developing an even more godly culture in our home. What are we doing to grow spiritually? What goals have we set for ourselves? When was the last time we worked through the Bible study course? The Bible study course. Brethren, if the last time we worked through the Bible study course was the Ambassador College Bible study course, and that's a wonderful course, actually both renditions of it, the 58 lesson and the 32 lesson. But if the last time we did that was that course, it was probably 30 or 40 years ago. The truth hasn't changed. But we need to continue to re re New, replenish these things in our mind. I had a wonderful opportunity to chat with a longtime church member on Friday afternoon. <clears throat> I called him back and we were talking about some living university things and he just mentioned that he's been busy because his pastor challenged them to go through the Bible study course. And we actually have one that's different than the Ambassador College one. We have a 24 lesson course that the Living Church of God puts out. In it, there's a lot of similarities, but there are quite a few differences with the old course that we had. And he was, he was on Lesson 16, studying Pentecost. And he said, this is great. He's a longtime church member. He's going to be 71 years old next month. This is great. Going through this again is, I'm seeing things I didn't see before. I'm being rejuvenated with this. We have some great, wonderful, helpful tools, brethren, that we must make sure we use. When was the last time we read through the church booklets? 
Some of the booklets haven't come out anew in over a decade. But the truth is just as true. We might want to set a goal for going through the booklets again. Maybe on a schedule. Maybe over the next year, between now and Pentecost next year. What do we have now? 32, 33 booklets? All on different topics. What kind of specific Bible study do we do? Have we done? Do we own a concordance? Or do we know how to access one online? I personally like the online ones. I think they're more powerful. But do we own a concordance? If not, if we don't know how to use one online, the, the depth of Bible study that we do is very limited. It's really hard to do a word study and really understand what does God mean by repentance? For example, if we don't have a concordance to look that word up and see every time God's chosen to use it or inspired it to be used. <clears throat> I encourage you, if you've not done so, and if you can, take a Living University course. This is not a commercial. I'm involved in Living University not because it helps put food on the table, but because I believe in the power of the education and the depth of the understanding that we can gain through this course. Many of you have taken classes. Many of you who are seniors and retired have taken these classes. You know, the average age of our Living University students is age 55. Which means we have a lot of younger ones. We have, we have high school students in this audience who are taking Living University classes and doing well in them. We also have hoary-headed ones in this audience. Some of us are hoary-headed at younger ages. But a lot can be gained. A lot can be learned <clears throat> through taking these classes. One of the exciting things, Mr. McNair's sermon got me thinking yesterday about uh, second, third, fourth generation Christians What's amazed me, what's inspired me is to have young people and some not so young people who've grown up in the church and in the truth make the comment, you know, I thought I really knew the Bible and I thought I really knew our teachings and I started taking these courses and my mind was just blown away by the depth of knowledge that I did not have. I want to read you a note from one of our students, one of our international Living University students. And the zeal for learning is what excites me. And again, Living University, you, you can make it to the kingdom of God without it. But it can really expand our perspectives. And in some cases, reignite a zeal as we learn on a level that we just can't learn on in church services once a week for an hour and a half of messages. It says, hi, <clears throat> yes, I'll be taking these classes for credit and students can take our classes for credit or they can audit if you take a class for credit you need to turn in assignments you actually have to write papers and take tests and quizzes and some some people don't want to do that if it is work they may not have time but we encourage you to to at least listen to the lectures and keep up with the readings but she says no i'll be taking them for credit i really can't wait to do the assignments and the exams particularly the assignments so I can get some feedback from you all. I would love to actually go physically to Living University and to do it as a proper degree. That would be a dream. I just currently am not able to do that with my work commitments that are 
in the way of reading God's word. That's how I feel. Is that how you feel? I mean, do you find it that you constantly want to be engaged in some form of reading or discussion about God? That's one to ponder over. Do I want to be constantly engaged in reading about or a discussion about God? I'll continue. I was first called about 15 years ago, and unfortunately my life was so all over the place, and I was in such a bad place that I didn't embrace God's calling. I read the material and believed it, but I didn't change my life. Instead of using God to help change my life around and help me, I escaped from my problems. She continues, but now it's all so different. I'm not sure the exact time six months ago where it all changed. I'd come back from overseas and started reading again. Now my life is completely God-centric and my prayers are so much better because I've established a real relationship with God and Jesus. My prayers with God are like an ongoing story. Every night I update Him on what's been happening and how He wants me to continue. I'm trying to make a relationship with Jesus. Jesus is my Savior. He died on the cross for my sins. And I cannot sin willfully anymore. I won't. I cannot do that to Him anymore. Nothing is going to stop me from obeying all God's ways and laws. I want to be a loyal soldier for Him. I want the honor of being counted worthy of being in the first resurrection. I just want to live a faithful, loyal, loving life with God and Jesus forever. Studying at Living University is imperative for that. I want to be completely prepared for the future. I want to be taught about all aspects of the Bible and Christianity as a whole. I'm blessed to have been accepted as a student so that I can achieve that. Thank you so much for offering these courses to not only us abroad, but also the on-campus students. It's so beneficial for everyone. I listen to the sermons every day. And of those from the ministers of the U.S., some of whom also teach at Living University, and I'm excited to be able to undertake their class. The zeal and the self-reflection is interesting. How zealous are we? I can ask the question of myself. How zealous am I? Do I want to talk about Christ and His way of life and His decision-making process all the time? David said in the Psalms, he prayed in the Psalms, Psalm 119, I won't turn there. Turn my eyes from worthless things. Brethren, how many worthless things make their way into our lives? I have to look at my own life. How many worthless distractions do I allow in that draw me away, that help break down the culture of godliness that Christ would want me to have in my life? I can ask the question Mr. Nathan read in the sermon this morning. How often do I feed on Jesus Christ? How often do I feed on Jesus Christ? A couple questions, brethren, before we close. What does your evening routine look like? What does your evening routine look like? How much a part of it is God? What does our Friday evening routine look like? It's encouraging to hear Mr. Mike DeSimone get up here and talk about Friday night or Saturday morning. If you've noticed, his family's watching the telecast. It's part of what they do on the Sabbath. It's a good piece of a routine to have on the Sabbath, to start the Sabbath with. 
Where does God fit into our everyday life? Again, ask yourself, is God a piece of the pie? Or is he an ingredient that filters through the whole thing? Brethren, what will we change so that God is a greater part of our everyday life? What do we need to change? What do you need to change? What do I need to change so that God is a greater part of our everyday life? Those of us who work or who go to school who have a commute. Here's one. How often do we listen to sermons during that time? Not that we have to listen to a sermon all the time. But how productively do we use that time? Are we always just listening to the radio? Whether it be music or talk radio? How often do we listen to sermons during that commute? What about those of us who live by ourselves? If we live by ourselves, chances are we have a lot of potential free time. Unless we're working two or three jobs. How do we use that potential free time? Do we fill it up with all kinds of things? Or do we create more time to spend with God? 1 Corinthians 7, you might want to read Paul's comments to single individuals. and His admonitions for using time wisely. How different are our lives than the rest of the people on our street or in our town? Brethren, we're first fruits. We should be different. Is the culture in our home one that Christ would feel at home in? If Christ came down to dinner tonight, to supper at your home, would he feel like, oh, I feel like I'm at home? Or would he feel like, I need to be nice as long as I'm here? But I don't feel at home here. It doesn't feel right. What can we do to make God's our, our homes more of an atmosphere Christ would want to spend time in? Brethren, God wants us to be true, wholehearted, totally dedicated in mind, heart, and actions, first fruits. What do you plan to do so that you move forward as an even more zealous and spiritually productive Christian? What do you plan to do in order to live as a more godly and more spiritually focused Christian. Brethren, we're all on the road. We're all, we're all going in that direction. I encourage you, keep up the good work. Let's all prod on, plod on. What can we do to do an even better job? Brethren, Christ was beaten and He died for all of us, for you and for me, so that we will choose to live differently than the rest of mankind. He gave us His Holy Spirit to use and to grow for His purposes. Brethren, if we're not close to God, if we're not clinging to Him, grabbing on with all of our might, His Holy Spirit cannot work effectively in us. I encourage you. I admonish you. I cheer you on. Gain even greater control over your daily life, number one. And number two, create an even more godly culture in your home. Brethren, Christ died so that we will do this. As we do this, we'll continue to grow and overcome. And we'll arrive at the next holy day season in just a few months, even more deeply converted, more godly, and as a more zealous Christian. Brethren, we'll make our Father in heaven and our older brother Jesus Christ proud of us. And we won't have to worry about disappointing them by just going through the motions.